Now, would you please turn with me, your Bibles, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. This is our second message on the book of Romans. And our second message on verses 1 to 7. What I refer to as a signature greeting. Grace to you and peace. Last time we looked at the basic form of that greeting. It identifies the sender and then the receivers. The sender in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The receivers in verse 7, to all who are in Rome. And the signature divine greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today, I want to focus on the manner in which the Apostle Paul personalizes this signature greeting. Everything in verses 2 through 6 is the way that he takes that signature greeting and makes it personal. And as we consider the signature greeting personalized by the Apostle Paul. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of coming to study your word together. And once again, we are totally dependent upon you. And we plead with you to send us the Holy Spirit and glorify your name. You are worthy to be exalted. Let Jesus see of the travail of his soul in this very place today by sanctifying believers and converting sinners. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now let me read once again and put in perspective the way Paul personalizes this signature divine greeting Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, the sender, identified in the nominative case. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He says that he's called an apostle and separated unto God's gospel. That then becomes the launching pad by which he personalizes the greeting. The receivers in the dative case, down in verse 7, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, sender of the letter, receivers of the letter, verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. And then finally, the signature divine greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that we saw that all of God's words to those who believe, to churches and to Christians, come in a context of reconciliation with God. God is not hostile toward you. God is smiling upon you. God's favor is upon you. And that all public ministry of the word that accurately reflects God's disposition toward his churches and people reflects grace and peace. Every ministry of the word. 
that this is the way he wrote, this is his disposition to every one of the churches in the Gentile world, to the Corinthians and to the Galatian churches and so on and so forth. It's always the same. Grace to you and peace. You remember we saw Remember what I said? I want to remind you. So you're going to preach the same sermon again? Nope, I'm just going to remind you. I'm going to remind you that when you find a nice, suitable, happy young man to fill this pulpit when it's time to replace this old man, get somebody here who gets it. Who understands that in the ministry of the word, the whole climate and tone of it is this. Grace to you and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not you, people! Oh, that's not grace to you and peace. That's who knows what to you, but whatever it is, it ain't grace and peace. Amen. You want somebody that gets it and that the whole flavor and tenor of that ministry is grace to you and peace. Now, don't forget that. You know, I thought afterwards as I was praying over what I preached last week, I just want to say this. That's not necessarily a point that you would just stand up and make unless you had some hobby horse or something. But one of the benefits of consecutive expository preaching is that things like that just come jumping out of the text at you and you didn't have to plan it. You don't have to have a hobby horse just by going through the consecutive exposition of scriptures, you get to say things and come into contact with things that you wouldn't normally say. So if I was just doing a topical sermon on some subject, I doubt I would pick that unless I had some you know, particular issue or problem. You had a guy in here and he's yelling and screaming and giving you all this. I thought, oh, then maybe I would say it. But you, know, you don't have to when you just do consecutive expository preaching. These things naturally come up and underscored to me that's one of the benefits of consecutive expository preaching. Not just an aside. Right, you remember that point? Remember that? Good, don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget that. But that's for the good of the church, for this church, and for every church. And our ministry needs to reflect God's disposition toward his people. Now, let's look this morning at how the Apostle Paul personalizes this greeting. This is a signature greeting. It's signature in that it comes to all the churches. But look how he personalizes it now in verses 2 to 6. You think, wow, this is a digression. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all that's a digression. He adds all this to the greeting. What is he doing? Well, he's personalizing the greeting. And the context, to me, explains why he does this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called an apostle, separated unto God's gospel, which he previously promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures about his son, who has come from David's posterity, according to flesh, who has been designated God's son in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship 
unto obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he focus on? Well, if you take the points of transition, he uses relative pronouns, relative clauses. Don't you just love English grammar lessons? He, he, he does it in such a way, string, it's really not English, it's really Greek lesson, which is even, even worse, right? He strings it all together in such a way that you really don't have any place to take a breath. But that's typical of Greek. They, they, they get a thought and they put the whole thing in such a structure that you have to say the whole thing all at once. And he uses the relative pronouns and the relative clauses associated with those pronouns to string the whole thing together into one basic idea. And, that, and the transition points are crucial. And the first transition point, the first focal point of the whole thing is this. Look what it is in verse 1. Separated unto God's gospel. God's gospel which? God's gospel about. His son. Second point. His son who? has come from David's posterity, who has been designated God's son in power. So you go from God's gospel to God's son. Then comes the next point of transition. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship. And then he talks about the grace and apostleship that he received and that the design of it and the fruit of it was to bring all the nations to obedience of faith on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And then the nations becomes the focal point of the next transition among whom, that is among all the nations, you are called of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, they belonged to the nations among whom he was ministering the gospel and he speaks about their conversion. In Starting in verse 5, he talks about his conversion and apostleship and ministry of the gospel to the nations. So, he speaks about the gospel, about the focus of the gospel, the subject of the gospel, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and then how Jesus Christ, who is the focus and subject of the gospel, saved him and gave him a ministry to bring the gospel to the nations, and then how they are connected to his ministry because they are among those nations to whom the Lord sent him to preach the gospel. So how do you put that together? Well, he's talking here in this entire 
personalized greeting. He's talking about his ministry or his life's work. I like the idea of his service to God or ministry better. But it is his life's work. It is his ministry. It's what he's called to do in his life in this world. And he launches into it with what sounds like a little bit of irony, a play on words, if you will. Do you remember what he was before he was converted? He was a Pharisee. He was one of the separated ones. And now he's been separated again, but this time it's just a little bit of a different separation. The separation that he had before was characterized, it was a religious separation, all right, but it was characterized by self-righteousness and blindness and a carnal zeal for God that was marked by religious hatred and religious bigotry and religious persecution. He was so separated, so, quote, holy in his own eyes, so superior to everybody else in his self-righteousness and carnal religious pride. Oh, he was a separated one, all right. But now something, he's, now he's been separated. But now that separation is a different kind of separation. It's a separation produced by grace. It's an evangelical or gospel separation, and it has a whole different flavor. And it's not Pharisaic anymore. It's evangelical separation. His separation now is unto the gospel of God. That now is the focus. That is his ministry. That's his life's work. That's what his life is now all about. Ironically, he's a separated one again. But he's a different kind of separated one now. His separateness is not marked by religious bigotry and self-righteousness and carnal pride and persecution and all the kind of evil zeal that marked his Pharisaic fanaticism. Now he's separated to the gospel of God. And it's that reality of what his life's work is now all about and what his ministry is all about and his religious service to God is now all about. It's not about the kind of carnal zeal that persecutes and imprisons people, but now it's an evangelical gospel zeal now it's a, it's a zeal full of mercy. Now it has the gospel focus. His religious service to God now is about God's gospel. Does that make sense? And from that reality of his life, that radical transformation of his life is how he personalizes this greeting. That's what he wants them to know about him, that his life has been changed. He's not Pharisaic in his separateness anymore. Now he's evangelical. His life has radically been changed by grace. And that reality, that fundamental transformation of this man's life 
is what regulates the way he personalizes this greeting. So I broke it up into three things. You could see how the transitions of the original at least support this division. The first thing in his personalized greeting is the focus of his separation, his, his gospel separation, the focus. And what's that? The message, God's message about his son. The focus of his ministry is God's gospel. Then, second thing that he addresses, after he talks about God's gospel, how God's gospel was revealed in the scriptures, how God's gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he talks about Jesus and his humiliation and Jesus and his exaltation. Then from there he gets to a second thing that he's talking about his ministry, and that is the foundation of his ministry. The focus of his ministry, God's gospel about his son. What's the foundation of his ministry? The foundation of his ministry is an encounter that he had with Jesus, the king, on the road to Damascus. And in that encounter with Jesus, he received grace and apostleship. That's the foundation of his ministry, that the Lord Jesus rescued him, transformed him, changed his life radically, changed the whole tenor, focus, outcome of his life. He changed everything about his life. And that is the foundation of his religious service to God. That he received grace and apostleship personally from the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about that foundation of his ministry. How Jesus gave him grace and set him apart. And he said, it's through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that, I re that we receive grace and apostleship. That the design or purpose of this was the obedience of faith among all the nations. And the ultimate goal of it was on behalf of the name of Jesus that he would be glorified that my religious ministry is not about myself, it's about him. And so he talks about the foundation of his ministry, which is his conversion and his commission, grace and apostleship. But then the third thing, see from that he transitions when he thinks about the fact that his commission growing out of his conversion is to bring the gospel to all the nations. He thinks, well, they are included in the scope of my commission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And that serves as the transition so that the fulfillment of his ministry would be bringing the gospel to them and cooperating with them in spreading the gospel as a pioneer missionary to the far reaches of the empire, even to Spain, as he says in other chapters. So you have the focus of his ministry, you have the foundation of his ministry, and the fulfillment of his ministry by bringing the good news to the Romans. Because they're included, and their conversion is included 
within the scope of his commission to bring the gospel to the nations. So that's how I broke it up into the focus, foundation, and fulfillment of his gospel ministry. Does that make sense? All right. Now let's look at what he says about the focus. Look what he says. He says that this gospel was promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is a message. It's a message from God to to human beings. It's a message of mercy. It's a message of salvation. It's a message of deliverance from sin and from the wrath to come. It's a message. It's good news. It's good news from God to sinners. And that good news was promised that the Messiah would come. One of the reasons I wanted to read Isaiah 53 this morning is not only because it serves such an obvious foundation to the Lord's table, it also serves as a good background to this text. You remember in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus walking on the road with two of his disciples, and he expounded to them all the things in the Old Testament concerning concerning himself. And when he did, their hearts burning within them. Was not my point this morning to go through all those things, but can you imagine if we were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and we've got the Old Testament open and Paul's referring to this, the promises of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and even so many of them in the book of Isaiah to us. A son is born. A child is born. To us. A son is given, and his name shall be called Counselor, Almighty Father, Prince of Peace. The promise of Christ throughout the Old Testament, described in great detail by Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before it happened, describes in detail the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Promise after promise, fulfilled in Christ. And then he says that the subject of the gospel to which he was set apart for ministry, the focus of his ministry and life's work, the gospel of God, the message of salvation from sin from God, the good news from God to sinners, promised through the prophets in the holy scriptures of the Old Testament, Here's what the gospel is about. Here's who the gospel is about. Verse 3, it is about his son. It is about God the son. And then he describes God the son as God the son is described in the prophets of the Old Testament. Beginning with his incarnation in his humiliation. Who has come from David's posterity according to flesh, as they asked, what do you think concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David. And Jesus says, if David in spirit calls him Lord, how is he his son? They couldn't answer. His legal human father, married 
to his biological mother. Joseph was descended from the line of David, the royal line of David. His biological mother, Mary, according to the genealogy in Luke, is descended from David through his son Nathan. So he is from the seed of David, legally, biologically, or physically, according to flesh, through his legal father Joseph and his biological mother Mary. He is actually David's descendant. In his incarnation, in his life, in his humiliation, he provides the rescue that every sinner needs from sin and from the wrath of God. And he provides that rescue in his perfect life and in his atoning death. As we read in Isaiah, described in great detail, that he bore the sins of his people, that he made him to be sin for us, and that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke is due, that God inflicted on him the punishment due to sin. He endured the wrath of God for those who deserve to go to hell in order that all those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He made atonement in his perfect life for sin. And in his perfect life and atoning death, he provides everything that any sinner needs to be right with God. Here's good news, huh? But his life does not end with his humiliation. We read, not only did he come from David's posterity according to flesh in his incarnation, with his resurrection, he has been designated God's son in power by resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. God raised him from the dead. God highly exalted him. He truly died on the cross and his human soul returned to his human body and his human body glorified, came out of the grave and he was seen by his disciples. And then he went back up bodily into heaven where he ascended to the throne of David and carved his coronation at God's right hand, seated on David's throne, reigning in power and glory where he is now. And from that place, he will return to this earth to judge the living and the dead. And now that he is reigning in glory, Isaiah says, he will see the travail of his soul. He will justify many. His name will be proclaimed. He will have victory. He will divide the spoil. There will be a great victory. Many will be saved from every kindred, tribe, and tongue in every generation while he reigns resurrected in glory. So his humiliation, his exaltation. 
The gospel of God is all about him. It's all about God's son, Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his humiliation that follows, providing everything that every sinner needs to be right with God, his resurrection, his exaltation, the glory that follows, the victory that follows, people saved from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, ultimately returning to this earth, and when he comes to judge the living and the dead, all will stand before him, and everyone will give account to him for the things we've done and how we've lived, and will be divided into two groups, the righteous and the wicked. And to the righteous, when he returns, he says, come you blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the wicked, he says, depart, ye cursed. To the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his fallen angels, the demons. And these shall go away, the wicked to everlasting punishment and the righteous to eternal life in new heavens, new earth, resurrection glory forever. That's his exaltation. And the story of Jesus, a story of humiliation and exaltation. That's what Isaiah described. The sufferings of the Christ and the glory to follow. That's the gospel. And Paul's life used to be about a blind, arrogant, religious zeal. And now his life is focused on ministering this message this wonderful message, a message of mercy, a message of salvation, a message of good news to sinners from God, a message about God's son Jesus, a message about his incarnation, humiliation, and perfect life, and atoning death in which he provides everything sinners need, and a message about his resurrection, and coronation, and glorification, and exaltation, and victory, and power, and spreading the good news powerfully to every kindred, tribe, and tongue for the glory of God. That's the message. So now, that being the focus of his ministry, what happened to him? What changed his life? What changed him from being the self-righteous, proud, angry, persecuting Pharisee to being a humble saved, gospel-believing, gospel-telling, mercy-dispensing apostle. What happened to him? What changed him? What is indeed the foundation of this wonderful evangelical gospel ministry that he has? Well, he tells us, verse 5, through whom, he says, we received grace and apostleship through whom? That is, through the resurrected, exalted, glorified Lord Jesus. You see, Paul's apostolic ministry was founded a little bit differently than the ministries of Peter and James and John. Peter, James, and John, they met Jesus in his earthly life. They met Jesus while he was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, and they, they met him during the time of his humiliation. 
And they became his disciples. And he went up to the mountain and he had many disciples. And when he prayed, he appointed 12 of them to be with him and to serve in apostolic ministry. They knew Jesus while he was here on earth. They were his disciples while he was here on earth. They met him that way. And they were appointed to their ministries that way. But Paul was different than that. Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus while he was here on earth. He wasn't a follower of Jesus like Peter, James, and John. He wasn't appointed to serve Jesus by Jesus while he was here on earth to an apostleship of ministering the word. That's not what happened in his life. He met Jesus and his life was changed. And his ministry started and was founded in a radically different way than that. Where did he meet Jesus? I thought, well, I didn't want to take the time this morning, but I thought, you know, there's, there's, he tells the story of what happened in his life. And it's recorded in the book of Acts. And it's a remarkable story. He was breathing out slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he had received authority and power from the chief priest to imprison those that called on the name of Jesus. And he was headed up to Damascus to do that very thing. And as he was getting near the city, someone met him. And it wasn't a lowly carpenter. It was the exalted Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it was a blinding experience. It was a humbling experience. It was a devastating emotionally experience. He was left crippled in one sense. He couldn't see very well afterwards. The other people around him knew that something remarkable and supernatural had happened. But he met the, the very one he talks about, the Lord Jesus Christ. He met God the Son incarnate after his resurrection, after his session, in glory. He met him, the king, on the throne of David, reigning in glory. And when he saw him, and we don't know, we weren't there on the road to Damascus, whether... You, you have to suspect that it was toned down some because if he had seen him in all his glory, it would have killed him. It almost did kill him. Didn't kill him. Almost. It stopped him dead in his tracks. Blinded him. Stunned him. Crushed him. When he met the glorified Christ on that road to Damascus, his life was radically changed forever. And that encounter with the risen, glorified Christ is what he's talking about. That's when he received grace and apostleship. His life was never the same. It couldn't be the same. He didn't know who this was. He said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you persecute. In other words, I'm alive and raised in glory. 
He met Jesus. God the Son. He had that experience. And that's when he received grace. Conversion. Forgiveness of his sins. An apostleship. A commission. Conversion and commission from that encounter. And the risen Christ commissioned him with a special apostolic commission to bring the gospel to the nations. Now the focus of the commission that he gave to Peter, James, and John was to the Jewish people. But the focus of the commission that as the resurrected Christ in glory he gave to Paul was to bring the gospel to all the Gentile nations. And it says that when Jesus commissioned him and converted him and transformed him permanently and forever, his, he said that he understood that this was to bring the nations to, quote, the obedience of faith. Now, the commentators differ about obedience of faith. Some people think it's talking about evangelical sanctification and gospel obedience that grows out of a saving faith, that a genuine saving faith always produces a life of gospel obedience. And that's true in and of itself. But other people think, no, that this is talking about the gospel and that the obedience of faith is talking about obeying the gospel. And what does the gospel command people to do? It commands them to believe. And so some people think it means the obedience of the Christian life that grows out of faith. And some people think it's the obedience to the gospel which consists of faith. And you know both of those things are true. And the very same faith by that in, through which we obey the gospel because we're commanded to believe, through that very same faith, we live a life of gospel obedience. So it's not like the two things are against each other. But at least it starts with this. What does God require people to do in the gospel? He requires them to repent and believe. Look, I don't want to get bogged down in this. I'm just going to say it. There's no such thing as genuine saving faith that is not connected to gospel repentance. And there's no such thing as gospel repentance that isn't connected to genuine saving faith. So it's not either or. If you repent and it's a genuine gospel repentance, it always involves saving faith. And if you believe and it's genuine saving faith, it always involves gospel repentance. So you can't pit repentance against faith as though it's possible to have genuine faith and not repent, or as though it's possible to have genuine repentance and not believe. That's not spiritually, experientially possible. So by talking about the obedience of faith, he's not leaving out the necessity of gospel repentance because there's no such thing as genuine saving faith that is not connected to gospel repentance. Saving faith is, you just heard the story of Jesus summarized very briefly. It's a story of God the Son who takes to himself a human nature and in that human body and soul provides everything that sinners need to be right with God. And God raised him from the dead and glorifies him. And trusting in him and calling on him is saving faith. Saving faith is knowing that story of Jesus 
Saving faith is affirming that story to be true. And saving faith is trusting personally and exclusively on the living Jesus of that story to rescue you from your sin and the wrath of God. Saving faith is calling on his name. It's calling on him. It's coming to him and relying on him and him alone personally to rescue you and save you from sin and from the wrath of God. And that's what it means to obey the gospel. To obey the gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who truly obey the gospel in gospel repentance and saving faith always live a life of gospel holiness that grows out of that genuine saving faith. But then the final thing he says about his commission. His commission is not about himself. Look at this, what he says. He says, unto obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. He wanted to see people saved among all the nations. But you know, his reason for that was not to puff himself up. It was not on his own behalf. It was not to glorify his persuasiveness, his successful ministry. He's spoken to thousands. Millions have been changed through me. Not about him. It's not about him. It's not about his success. Yes, he wants people to be saved from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. Yes, he's willing to bring the gospel anywhere on earth as a pioneer missionary because that's what Jesus sent him to do. Jesus changed his life. And now he serves them. He ministers the gospel everywhere to anyone and everyone. Out of a sense of love to Christ and what Christ did for him, and goodwill to human beings who deserve to go to hell as much as he does. And he deserves to go to hell as much as they do. And he knows it. And he wants them to be rescued. But he wants all that for Jesus' sake. For the sake of his name. That he shall be glorified. He should be magnified. He should be the center of attention. Not Paul. Christ, that this is not all about Paul, that this effective worldwide ministry of evangelism is not about him. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus being glorified and magnified and exalted and seeing of the travail of his soul and being satisfied. It's doing honor to the great worthy name of Jesus because Jesus is worthy that his name should be praised through all gospel ministry and service. It's all about him. Not about us, folks. It's about him. Which brings me to the final point for this morning. And that is we've looked at the focus of his ministry, the gospel of God's Son, the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, his exaltation. The foundation of his ministry, his encounter with the glorified Son of God, in which Jesus glorified 
Christ changed his life radically forever when he met him on that road to Damascus and commissioned him to bring the gospel to the nations for the glory of Jesus' name. But now he moves from that to their inclusion within the scope of his ministry because he says that his ministry is to the nations to obedience of faith among all the nations among whom you are called of Jesus Christ. Now he speaks about the fulfillment of that ministry. It's founded in his encounter with Jesus and how Jesus showed him grace and apostleship. But now how is it to be fulfilled? It's to be fulfilled as he ministers to those in Rome. Because they also are called of Jesus Christ. They have been converted through hearing the call of Jesus. It doesn't specify how. That is, through what human instruments the gospel first and the message of Christ first was brought to Rome. But he knows that they have been called by Jesus through the ministry of the gospel. And now he wants to fulfill his commission from Christ by ministering to them because they are within the scope of his apostolic commission because Christ commissioned him to bring the gospel to all the nations. So he speaks about their conversion. Now when it says that they were called of Jesus Christ, how were they called? Were they called generally or were they called effectually? My answer is yes. They were called generally through the general call of the gospel and they were called effectually through the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And we sing in hymn number 220, Blessed Jesus at your word, we are gathered all to hear you. They were called of Jesus Christ through the general and effectual call of the gospel. And they heard that call. And they responded in the obedience of faith to that call. Which means that Paul's fulfilling his apostolic commission by ministering to them. Because God has called them through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. So, you have the focus of his ministry the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, foundation of his ministry, his encounter with Christ, how Christ saved him and commissioned him. The fulfillment of his ministry to the Romans that had been called out of darkness to light through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were called by Christ himself through the gospel, through the ministry of the gospel, the general and effectual call. So what application do you think that has to us? Think it has any relevance to us? Oh, I do. I do. think it does. Let me ask you this question. Now, I'm not asking you... Let me rephrase. Because I'm not asking you, have you had a supernatural encounter in which you've actually seen what Paul saw on the road to Damascus? I'm not asking you. Not expecting that you would have that. And there are some that 
want to glorify experiences like that and say that there has to be almost some supernatural experience in order for somebody to come to faith in Christ. There's an element of truth because salvation does involve the power of God that is supernatural. It's true. But that doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it doesn't mean that it's accompanied with the same kind of experiential things that Paul's was on the road to Damascus. But the point is this. All genuine religious service to Christ, generally speaking, generically speaking, is built on the same foundation. It's built on the reality of encountering, having a personal encounter with Jesus, the risen Christ, that changes your life. I mean, that's what happened to me. I didn't see blinding lights. I didn't hear voices out of heaven. And I'm not saying that it involves seeing blinding lights or hearing voices out of heaven. But I'll tell you this. Jesus Christ, the risen, glorified Jesus Christ, encountered me and transformed my life. Even though I didn't see blinding lights or hear voices. It's not, see, it's not about seeing blinding lights or hearing voices. It's about having a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. So, well, how can I have an encounter with somebody who's dead? And exactly, you couldn't. He's not dead. And he wasn't dead when he met Paul on the road to Damascus. And he's not dead now. It is alive. And I agree, you couldn't have an encounter with a dead man. But Jesus Christ is not dead. He's just as alive as he was 2,000 years ago. Therefore, go to him. Encounter him. Call on him. If you have never had a personal encounter with Jesus, I entreat you go. So that sounds scary. It was pretty scary when Paul met him. Almost killed him. And it's it's going to change your life. Your life's never going to be the same. So if you want business as usual, the wrong place to go is Jesus. Don't go to him. Because when you meet him, it's not going to be business as usual anymore. Your life is going to change. It's going to change radically. It's going to change permanently. And it's never going to be the same. That's what happened to Paul. And that radical change of your life is absolutely essential as a foundation to any Christian ministry or service. You can't serve Jesus if you don't know him. So I entreat you, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. If you have never encountered Jesus personally, go to him. Say, how do I do that? Where is he? He's in heaven. Well, how am I supposed to get there? Prayer. Call on him. 
talk to him. Who said, what do I say? Tell the truth. You're a sinner. You haven't served God. You deserve to go to hell, and you know it. Ask him to have mercy on you. And he says, come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you I'll give you rest. He says, him that comes to me, I'll never, never cast out. Call upon him. Ask him to rescue you and save you. And what's, what's going to happen when you encounter Jesus, not only is your life going to be radically, permanently changed forever, but also the whole focus of your life is going to change. What your life is all about is going to change. Whatever it's about now, while you're living in sin, it's not going to be about that anymore. So Paul's life, yo, he was a separated guy. His life was actually about religion. But it was false religion, misguided religion, zealous religion, angry religion, hateful religion, bitter religion, persecuting religion, kind of religion that gives religion a bad name. That's what he had. So the whole focus of his life radically changed. And whatever the focus of your life is right now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to radically change. And it's going to have something to do with Jesus when it's new focus. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's going to be called to be a preacher or and nobody's going to be called to be an apostle. Don't, don't think that. Jesus is not going to call you to be an apostle. And doesn't necessarily mean he's going to call you to be a preacher either, but this is going to happen. When your life radically changes, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And, that, and the Holy Spirit is going to come and live in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is going to give you, endow you with spiritual gifts so that you can in some way minister to God's people. It may be a ministry of service. It, it may be a ministry of comfort. It may be a ministry of... Some of you may be given a gift to teach and some of you a gift to manage and some may be appointed to office in the church. I don't know. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit bestows. And according as each one has received a gift and every one that's saved will, when he changes your life, it's going to become about serving him in whatever capacity he gives you to serve him. Now, I understand, I mean, I, whenever you say something, you always have to balance it. I'm not saying that he throws out your, you should just forget your vocation, forget providing for your family. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to stop, stop. I'm not going to. I'm just simply saying that when the Lord Jesus radically transforms people, he endows them with spiritual capacities to serve him. And our life becomes about serving him, about ministering with whatever capacity and stewardship he gives us when he transforms. So I don't know what he's going to give you to do. But I know that he's going to change your life. He's going to change your life forever. He's going to change your life for the better. He's going to change your life in such a way that he's going to give you to serve him and to minister in some way. Just like he did for Paul. Now, for Paul, he gave him grace and apostleship. And he 
met him on the road to Damascus with blinding lights and voices out of heaven. You're not going to see blinding lights and hear voices out of heaven. If you do, there's something else going on. But when you encounter him, he is going to change your life. He's going to give you gifts to serve him for the rest of your life. May God be pleased that you would know that great blessing. That there wouldn't be a single person that hears this this morning and says, well, I never met Jesus. I never want to meet him. I have no interest in encountering somebody like that. You know, that's really sad. It's very, very sad. Your life would be so much better if you knew him, if you met him. Your life would be changed forever and changed for the better. So I entreat you, by his meekness and gentleness, if you don't know him, go to him now. If you do know him, ask yourself, Okay, what has he given me to do? What, what, what endowments, what gifts, what capacities of his Holy Spirit has he given me to serve him and to glorify him and to do good to other people's souls? What, do I, what has he given me? What does he want me to do? What is my life now all about in terms of ministry? And then remember, do it. Redeem the time doing it. Focus on it. No, I'm not saying again. I'm not saying you should give up loving your family and providing. And no, 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 no. Don't get it imbalanced. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying be good stewards of it. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God using whatever he's given you. And remember this. It's the last word I want to say this morning. When you are serving him and ministering, in a gospel way, your labor is never in vain in the Lord. It's never wasted. It's always worthwhile. It's never a waste of time. He gave you whatever he gave you in order to serve him for his glory, the glory of his name, and the good of your fellow men. And when you serve, it's never in vain. Well, may God be pleased to Bless his holy word. Let's pray.